Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. I'm Dr. Arlene. Welcome to my show. I will teach you how to use my Right Fit Method, which will empower you to achieve your career and life goals. My guest today is Tom Lombardo, healthcare media pioneer and founding editor-in-chief of WebMD. I met Tom by phone in the sweltering Atlanta summer of 1998. Later in the show, Tom will talk about his vision of me riding into his life on my white horse. Rejection, uncertainty, and death create career success. This is an apt description of Tom's career journey, which he eloquently describes in his nonfiction essay, Fieldwork, a 2008 nominee for the prestigious Pushcart Prize. I will peek into Tom's mind to reveal how he strategized to find the right fit. Watch him walk down the road marked no passion, and then, after years of suffering, find the road marked passion. Quoting Tom from his essay field work, I found myself out of sync, out of place, and out of time as I finished up my senior year of college, about to receive a degree in metallurgical engineering materials, science from a top engineering school, I had bleak prospects. I had gone to job interviews with button-down shirt, close-crop hair recruiters. Me in my dirty bell-bottoms, shoulder-length walks, thick beard and earrings. This was 1972, and I was under the influence of the hippie culture. I knew I didn't fit in with U.S. Steel or Walkwell International. I felt like a black panther trying to join the Augusta National Golf Club. Tom, take it from here. Well, Dr. Barrow, I was... uh graduating from college with a degree that I knew I couldn't use. Um, I realized while I was going to job interviews that I had absolutely no passion for a career in engineering. So I made uh, a decision to park myself in graduate school. I applied to uh, two graduate schools, uh, and this was very, very late in my senior year, got accepted to the University of Cincinnati. 
and entered a graduate program there in metallurgical engineering. When you entered, Tom, well, how did you feel? Did you feel that you had selected the right fit? No. I knew that I was putting myself on hold. Uh, it was a very confusing time in my life and in society. I uh, arrived in Cincinnati the day of the Watergate break-ins. That would have been June 1972. Um, the Vietnam War was raging, and uh, I just I just had no idea what I was what I was destined for. And uh, I I parked myself in graduate school. That's basically what I did. I didn't want to go to work as an engineer, and an academic uh, environment. I thought at the time was the best thing for me. Well, why did you select engineering? Did your parents encourage you to go into engineering? What motivated you initially? Because you could have selected other areas. Yes, well, I had an aptitude for science and mathematics. And, uh, you know, I grew up as a working-class boy, and uh, I guess I saw engineering as a way up the social ladder. Um, I also had an aptitude for writing and and language. Um, you know, I had very high SATs, uh, high on both sides. Back then, there were just two two tests. I think now there are three. Uh, my 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 science and math and verbal were the same score. And um, but uh, I really didn't have a lot of opportunities. I had a scholarship to go to Carnegie Mellon University, and I didn't really have a choice because my parents couldn't afford to pay for college. So I had to go to Carnegie Mellon University. Okay. And when you go to a school like Carnegie Mellon University back then, now mm-hmm. it has a much broader curriculum. Still, it is an engineering and science school. Back then, even more so. And I really chose metallurgical engineering sort of out of the out of the hat. It seemed like the easiest engineering discipline to me. Uh, I was on the football team there. Several of my teammates were metallurgical engineering majors, and they said, "Oh, it's easy. You ought to just get in this this discipline here. Uh, you can graduate and make nine hundred dollars a month." So were you were, you were motivated by money then, Tom, at that time? Yes. Of course, yeah. I uh, I came, uh, as I said, I came out of a working class background. I was the first person in my family to enter college, and um, you know I wanted a comfortable life, so money was definitely a motivator. Talk to me about your research. How did you do as a researcher? In graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, I was pretty awful as a researcher. All right. Because uh, you in graduate wrote... school in engineering, uh, and in many of the scientific and technical disciplines, you you do research projects for your professor, uh, who is essentially your boss, and uh, whatever they have uh, research grants for, that's what you work on. Uh, unfortunately, I, I was uh, working with a brand new professor. 
a newly minted Ph.D., who had no research grants, and his goal, his ambition was to use me to do research and, and, and establish some, uh, gather some findings and data that would allow him to apply for a, a research grant from the National Science Foundation or the Defense Department or maybe a private company. And so uh, I, I was, I was sort of, that was sort of my job. After my coursework, I had the, the lab work, and that was my job, is to gather findings that would allow my professor to uh, go out and get research grants to um, take these findings to the next step. Okay. And I was pretty bad at it. I, I, I was a pretty lousy uh, researcher. It was a difficult project, too. We were trying to, at first, we were trying to uh, um, synthesize a very complex compound. It was sort of a biomedical project. It's called high aluronic acid. It's a, it's a, a fluid that's in joints, mostly the knee. And the theory was if you could synthesize this in the lab, then it could be used. Uh, it could be developed into some sort of synthetic fluid that would be then used to treat arthritis patients. That didn't work. Uh, it's very complicated uh, to do something like that. And then I then then, uh, then I worked on a, a project um, which I will uh, loosely call coatings, which are paints basically. And in, in, uh, in, in metallurgical engineering, coatings on metals are very important. And, and I studied those for a while because um, my professor thought he could maybe get a grant from the Sherwin-Williams Company. And I, I messed around with that for about a year and got nowhere. The first project took a year. The second project took a year. Both were miserable failures. I had no passion. Okay. Um, you. You write when you're working on your master's degree. Uh, this is, again, from your brilliant essay, Fieldwork. My methodologies were somehow not methodological, and I never did get the hang of designing the experiment correctly. My research was literally worthless, and at the end of two years, I had only one clear finding. I was not going to receive a master's degree. It was during this time that I started writing a lot. Fiction, poetry, nonfiction. It was the one thing I was good at in college, and to amuse myself, I spent time writing short stories, weird poems, and kept a journal. How did you feel when you realized that you would not receive your master's degree and why did you turn to writing at this time? Well, I, I realized early on that I was out of place. And uh, about a year into this, I was there for two and a quarter years, nine quarters in graduate school. About a year into this, I, I, I absolutely knew that this was, this was not the right fit for me. And um, that's when I started writing again. I had, I had written a lot in high school and college. I was a very good writer. And I had some very good teachers and writing mentors when I was younger, um, and um, I, uh, you know, I, I felt pretty awful because here I am in graduate school. I, I, I felt at the time 
So I had wasted four years in college, and now, you know, a year and possibly a second year on my master's. And uh, it was about this time, about a year into this, I realized that I, I just wasn't going to succeed. And um, I, I found the, you know, the short stories, the poems, the, the journal were my personal writing. But I also started realizing that I really had a passion for writing. And uh, as, a, as a graduate student, uh, on, on, by the way, a full assistantship, I was permitted to audit courses or, or take courses anywhere in the school, uh, the University of Cincinnati. And I found that in the English department there were three journalism courses. It wasn't a major. It wasn't even a minor. It was just a very short track. And, and I took all three of those courses from a professor, an English professor there named John Hughes. And I, I spent some time talking to John um, outside of class and told him that I, I thought maybe I would really like to become a journalist. And I, I, he recommended that I start working for the campus magazine called Clifton Magazine. It, was a, uh, it had won some national student magazine awards. It was a very, very good magazine, slick four-color magazine. And um, so I wrote, I wrote some feature articles for them during that second year in graduate school. And, and uh, John also recommended uh, that I, I maybe try my hand at some journalism. And I went, uh, uh, he happened to know the, the editor of a uh, small community newspaper in, in, the, in the neighborhoods that the University of Cincinnati uh, was in. And uh, he introduced me to a man named Richard Byrd, and, and I got some assignments from him and was getting paid. Uh, to write some freelance articles for his uh, it was a bi-weekly community newspaper. It covered five neighborhoods in the city of Cincinnati, in the city, city neighborhoods. Um, I was getting paid ten, fifteen dollars an article, and and uh, and with my writing for the Clifton Magazine and my personal writing that I was doing short stories and, and fiction and, and and journal writing, my passion for writing was was going was increasing by leaps and bounds. And it was during this time I realized I had to make a separation. I was not going to succeed as an engineer. I was not going to succeed in graduate school. I didn't like it. I didn't like the people, though I, I had some good friends there. I didn't like the kind of work that everybody was doing. So when you say you didn't like the people, because I think that the culture in which one works is very important, is it that you didn't like them on a personal basis or on a professional basis because of the nature of the work? I liked them on a personal basis. I didn't like them on a professional basis because of the nature of the work. Okay. Although I have great respect for scientists and and uh, physicians. I'm a, I'm a medical editor now, and we'll get into that, I think, later. Right. But um, great respect for people, and, and I understand the, the, uh, the scientific method and the methodologies they use. But... I just I just didn't really like the whole the whole environment environment of the of graduate school. You know, the graduate students are treated really poorly, and um, I just you know we were we were almost indentured um, servants servants to the to the professors, holding our degrees hostage unless we you know worked 15 hours a day to produce the data they needed. To get their grants, which uh, you know, more publications, they get famous, they get tenure, uh, they get a cut of the grants, the school gets a cut of the grants, 
the graduate students get very little. I was paid a stipend of $400 a month, uh, which even now sounds like a small amount. Back then, of course, it was a, it was a little bit more uh, because of inflation since then. But um, so you also uh, didn't like, I guess, the hierarchy of how things functioned. Yeah, yeah, the hierarchy was was uh, was pretty bad, and of course, I was at the bottom of it <laughs> as a graduate. I student. understand. But Mr. Bird gave you some very good news. You wrote yes. in field work. I became the editor in chief of this. Well, one day I walked into his office with my article, and uh, this was about the third or fourth assignment. And um, uh, uh, Professor Hughes at the university, where I'd taken three courses, uh, had spoken very, very highly of my work, and he, he knew he knew of my magazine articles, and he and he, and he saw my work. Uh, that I was producing for him, and he looked up at me over the paper, and, and, he, and, he, and he said, do you want to become editor of this newspaper? He said, I need to step back. He also ran a, type of, uh, a small typographics and production company out of the same offices, and their business was growing, and the newspaper he couldn't continue to edit. And when he said that, he said, do you want to become editor of this newspaper? You take it over, and I'll step back. I'll, I'll continue to be the business manager. I, uh, I mean... Obviously, it could have knocked me over. I said, yes, of course, I'll start tomorrow. And then I went immediately. This was right before Thanksgiving of 1974. It was the end of my ninth quarter. I, I went from his office to my professor's office, and I said, I'm resigning. I'm quitting graduate school. Well, when you told your professor that, you further said, um, he told me I was crazy. And so did my father when I told him on a visit home that holiday weekend. Right, but I Thanksgiving, I, I, Thanksgiving weekend, I went home to visit my family. Right. Well, you know, I'd, I'd been there nine quarters, and, and my professor, I was, I was his main graduate student. He was counting on me to get him data that would get him contracts. And I was walking out on him after, you know, after nine quarters of, of, uh, of, of working there. And, and when I told him what I was going to do, he just thought that was the craziest thing he ever heard. Um, and uh, but uh, you know, what could he do? I quit. Um, well, I like what you had said about. Uh, and my father, you know, obviously my father um, felt that I had spent all this time in engineering, and, and you know, he he he's the kind of guy where you know you get a job and you work at it, and and. Um, you know, he just then I guess he wondered what the heck I was doing. I spent four years in an undergraduate school, got a degree, spent two and a half years, almost two and a half years in graduate school, getting no degree, and here I was taking a job that was going to pay me two hundred dollars a month, so half of what I was making as a graduate student. Um, I guess he just thought that was really <laughs> insane at the time. So <laughs> let let's. let's a little further about that. Let's talk about uh, a couple of things. The money on one hand and what you said um, that you suddenly had a sense of purpose. I felt it physically inside. My direction felt right for the first time in years. What did you mean by you felt it physically? Yes, I felt like an eagle just released from his cage back into the natural habitat that he was born for. I was soaring 
literally, it was like being reborn. I didn't care the least about the money at that point. I mean, I was dirt poor, but the money was not the driving force. I knew in my gut that this is what I was meant to do. And that's basically what I told my father and mother. I said, I, I want to do this. I really think I can do well at this. And, um, um, you know, they, in, in the end, relate, that was enough for them. Pardon did me? Did they relate to your passion, Tom, your parents? Did they understand what you were saying? Uh, I think my mother did more than my father. Uh, I remember spending a lot of time talking to her about it. Showed her some of my articles, and uh, you know, my mother, my mother and father are not, were not educated people. They they don't have college degrees, but they're they're they speak impeccable grammar and they're literate people. My mother and father both are big readers, and so she said, "Wow, this is good stuff. I like this," um, and so. She kind of gave it her blessing, and I think my father got in line be- because of that too. Um, and uh, you know that was so sort su- of so suddenly the money no longer was important to you. Am I correct? It was the passion, the pursuit of passion. You then changed your road from I the passionless. My road. Yes, you right. changed your road changed to the right road, fit right. road. I, I, I felt this was road. the right fit. This was the perfect right fit for me. The flawless it felt right. fit. It felt right. It was a flawless fit, right? Exactly. Okay. Uh, it um, felt right inside. I felt like everything had aligned from head to toe in my body and mind for this job. And it was just a little community newspaper, bi-weekly, 10,000 circulation. But it was the beginning... I don't know if you're aware of how you've changed during the course of conversation when you switch to talking about journalism. You can hear the passion in your voice. There are many people that I coach that have difficulty getting in touch with their passion. That's why I'm pursuing the passion in great detail, and I'm delighted that you're able to recall the feelings that you had so many years ago. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice at all about the role of passion and its importance in an individual's career? You must go with your passion. You must go with your passion. If you are in a position that you don't have a passion for, even if you do well at it, you will not be happy. Why not have a position that you have a passion for. If you have a passion, you will do well in it. You'll do very well, and you'll be happy to boot. Go with your passion. Excellent advice. Um, In the last line of the essay, you wrote, I often wonder what Mr. Bird saw in me. I will tell you, Tom, he saw the right He saw you as a journalist. And he was right. And he was right. Let's go further. Why did you decide to pursue a master's degree in journalism? Well, I felt um, when I when I made that decision, I was I had moved up to a daily newspaper in Ohio, Middletown, Ohio, and, and I wanted to become John Noble Wilford. 
John Noble Wilford is the longtime science writer of the New York Times. Uh, he may be retired now. Back then, he was very, very well known, and was was for decades. The what top year was this, writer. Tom? Can you give us some idea about uh, this? This would have been 1977, 78. Okay, in the late 70s. All right. 1976. 1977, something, yeah, that, 1977. Uh, I was on the copy desk of a daily newspaper and, uh, you know, had a, had a good job there and was well-liked. I could have stayed there my whole career, and, you know, when I was 70, I would have been the editor. Um, but uh, I, I wanted to, as I said, I wanted to go to, to be the science writer of the New York Times. And uh, so I felt, I, I, I was sitting on the desk, I'm thinking, how can I get there? How can I get from here on the copy desk of the Middletown Journal in Middletown, Ohio, to the New York Times and be a science writer? I said, well, I already have an engineering degree. Wow, doesn't that sound useful? But I, need, I felt I needed another credential. So I, I applied to graduate schools in, to get a master's in, in journalism. I felt that if I could match the master's in journalism with my BS in engineering, that that would make me desirable. Uh, in, in the science writing area. And so, What's interesting, I think, is how you recalled your early background and was you basically decided to marry it to journalism. Yes, yes, exactly. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Because earlier you talked about how much you didn't like it. So tell us what you did like and well, why Well, but writing decided- about science and engineering... Is a heck of a lot more fun than doing it. That's what I wanted to hear. The application of it. The application, yeah. So, so I felt that I had one credential, which was the the the, the training, the background in, in in the scientific area. By the time I applied to graduate school, I I had four years of experience uh, in journalism, professional journalism at the small biweekly, and then uh, was a couple of years at, at the at the Middletown Journal. And so it was pretty straightforward. I applied to the, to the two top journalism schools in Ohio. I wanted to stay close to Cincinnati. Um, and I, I was accepted to both Ohio State and Ohio University. And I picked Ohio University because they were ranked as one of the top three magazine journalism programs. And they had a, they had a professor there named Byron Scott, who, whom I met with on a visit, and I really liked him a lot. He was also a former science writer when he had a job in, in media. And so I, I matriculated there. And uh, since I'd already had a failed attempt at a thesis in, one, in my engineering graduate school days, I knew going in that I wanted to get this done in one year. That's all the money I had. Um, I was going you were against... You still a poor journalist, right, Tom? Well, but, yes, but I was going back to school, again, tuition-free because I got an assistantship. I was going to, I worked in the PR department at Ohio University for the year writing articles and press releases. But but so what I did is the summer before I matriculated uh, I I went up and I met uh my he was going to be my professor. I said I want you to be my thesis professor. I want to start now before I even get here on a project. So that summer we we started together on a project. So I had a running start on my thesis because I knew I had one year to do this. I had, you're right, I was still a poor journalist. I had one year worth of money, and, and, and I wanted to get in and out in one year. 
and I succeeded at that. And, and at the end of the year, I graduated, got my master's in journalism. And in September 1978, I, I, I defended my thesis, received my master's, got married, and moved to New York City to a job, to a position in New York City that I had, I had interviewed for. So it was a big what month for me. What position was that? I took a position as associate editor with a magazine called Spectrum. It was a high-technology magazine, not a large circulation, but highly respected in the media. Um, articles that would be written about in Spectrum magazine, three months later, the New York Times science writers would be writing about. So the magazine was a bit ahead because it was a magazine for engineers and scientists. And uh, it got, uh, the magazine covered a lot of early research. And at that time, the semiconductor industry and computers were just, personal computing was just at the very nascent stages. You know, computers were getting smaller and smaller and smaller. They used to fill up a room, and, and, and uh, you know, now people were beginning to see them come down almost to desktop size. Computing, com computing speeds were rapidly improving because of what was going on in the semiconductor industry. And those were all electrical engineers, and this magazine was essentially for electrical and electronics engineers. So it was a very hot, hot magazine. Um, so again, I, your background was relevant, the early background. Yes, my background definitely was, was relevant. Relevant, yeah, that's good. And, and, and in looking for a position after, uh, as my master's in journalism was, was coming to a close, again, I, I, had a, I had a blueprint. Again, looking for the right fit. I wanted to do science writing and editing. I wanted a career path in New York, and I wanted exposure to big-time journalists. So the offer um, from Spectrum Magazine matched my blueprint. Plus, I liked the man who was going to be my boss. Um, I felt he'd be a good mentor. And it turned out that I was right. He was great. The great Ellis Rubenstein, who went on to be the top science editor at Newsweek and then the editor-in-chief of Science Magazine, which is really the pinnacle of science journalism. So not only was the position the right fit, but also the supervisor. The supervisor, the staff, it was it was just it was really a great it was a great fit. And I worked there four years. Uh I covered the first launch of the space shuttle in person, uh which was really, really great. I still have the the, the um the uh, slides that I shot of that space shuttle going off and uh, interviews with uh a number of astronauts and, and the the, the famous Eugene Krantz, who was the crusty crew cut guy who ran the the flight system um, in the movie Apollo 13, he was played by uh, I'm going to forget the name of the actor now, the guy with the tie giving orders around. Um, interviewed several astronauts, one of whom was later killed in the Challenger disaster, Judith Resnick, who was a Carnegie Mellon graduate, which is why I interviewed her. And also an electrical engineer, I wrote an article about her. Um, so I also covered the Three Mile Island nuclear accident, for which I shared a National Magazine Award with the staff. Uh, it, w it was a, an award for the whole issue, so the whole staff shared that award. And uh, 
you know, then I think the, that was in 79, and then the following year was the space shuttle launch, 8081. Um, and I was covering a lot of interesting technology, a lot of, a lot of uh, space program articles. And, and after the space shuttle launch, I came back to my desk, and this thought struck me. I said, I could work here 10 more years and never top this moment. I said, what can happen in the next 10 years that's going to top that experience? And that's when I started looking for another challenge. Can you fast forward us to the position of founding editor in chief and explain right. how did you handle the high level management challenge? I know okay. in between uh, your position in New York and WebMD, you had management challenges, but this was a management challenge that could have been a bit daunting. Could you fast forward us to 1998? Right. right. I would just like to spend one minute on the intervening uh, 15 years. Excellent. Uh, when Excellent. I left New York. Because I do want to have you back to yeah. talk further about that. I uh, moved but... to a small publishing company in Tennessee, um, I sensed that it was poised for growth. And I joined them as an associate editor, which was a lateral move. Um, but within within seven years, I had risen to executive vice president and senior partner because the growth came, and, and, and I was there to experience it. And along the way, I became uh, a medical editor and health editor there. So that's... That's what's critical to the WebMD experience because in my time there, I was there 14 years at that company, and launching, I became a launch expert too. Uh, we were launching new media. I was launching new media on the average of once a year. So the launch of WebMD in some ways fit right into my background. To me, it was just another launch when I took the job as editor-in-chief, but it was much, much bigger. Uh, the scope was much bigger because it was happening all at once. Uh, I was hired to help launch that website. And as, as you may know, WebMD uh, has become uh, the medical and health juggernaut that um, gets close to 1 billion page views per quarter. And it's a huge operation. And my position there was to, to get this company, this editorial department, from zero to that in, in a year. Um, Talk about... And I had to find the best people that I could find, and lots of them, to fuel that growth. Uh, and that's when I met you, Dr. Barrow, and hired you as a consultant to find 40 right-fit candidates for my open positions. I had positions open in the U.S., the U.K. in London, and, and in uh, Toronto in Canada. And those positions included writers, editors, doctors, and nurses. And at the time, you know, I was wearing two hats. I was an editor trying to establish the editorial procedures, uh, holding editorial meetings every day. We, we ran a daily medical and health news operation. So it was like running a large daily newspaper. We, we published about 13 to 14 new articles every day. And uh, But my other hat as a high-level manager was, was getting all these people in. And you, 
Dr. Barrow helped me with that with that high level manager's work. And uh, you helped me succeed by fitting all of these right fit candidates into my open positions and, and therefore made me look like a genius and, and helped WebMD grow. We could not have grown without these people. We couldn't have met any of our goals. We were launching new channels every week. And every Explain about the channels, Tom, because when well, we, we started out, yeah, we started out very small. We we had we had a couple of diseases that we were covering on the on the the consumer health side, which would be which would be the the, the non physicians who would go in and look for health. We had you know heart disease, breast cancer, fibromyalgia, and and then we would launch new channels: prostate cancer, and then. Uh, attention deficit disorder or depression, new diseases. And on the physician side, we also had a physician website that was for doctors. Um, you know, we, we would start with family practitioners, and we would launch those by specialty, family practitioners, cardiologists. They were first. Then we'd have gastroenterologists, endocrinologists, psychiatrists. Okay, so we would add specialties. So every time you add a specialty, it's a new channel. It's a new channel of news. It's a new channel of databases, and on, on the, the consumer side, the non-physician side, it was the same thing. Every time you add a disease that you're going to cover, you have to add uh, news, and you have to add databases that people can search in those diseases, message boards, which, which uh, turn into communities of people that either have the condition or disease or are caregiving Alzheimer's, Okay. Depression. And then, of course, you also uh, launched uh, WebRN at the same time. WebRN, uh, we together, Dr. Barrow hired 15 nurses from around the country, and they worked as a virtual staff. Yeah, it was an amazing setup. I mean, we just worked day and night to get you the right fit every single time. We launched that, uh, we launched that site in five months, which is fast, believe me, in it, for a media launch of that size. But of course, but, we didn't. But I think we didn't hire all, all forty people in five months, Tom. <laughs> no, 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 no. Web I just wanted to make that clear. It's because that would have been impossible. Um, but, but I want to make this point that all of those hires worked very well. I didn't have to fire or discipline even one of them. Otherwise, I would have had a mess on my hands. So, um, when you know, when you step into a man management position like that, it's crucial to hire right fit candidates, or you will not succeed. If you're the manager, you will fail. If you hire the wrong people, you're going to have the wrong staff. Was it difficult for you to have uh, responsibility for the editorial content as well as the management? Was no, hard- because when you're, when you're the editor-in-chief, and, and by the time I, I took the WebMD job, I had been the top editor of, uh, of several, I was the executive vice president and senior partner at, at, at the company of Tennessee, Whittle Communications, and in and, and the creative department, I was an upper-level manager there, budgeting, hiring, firing, performance reviews. And, and, and you know, from there I had uh, an intervening position where, where I had a similar job. So uh, I was an executive editor and editor-in-chief for, for a number of years, um, no, I really enjoyed the, the management part of it. I think um, I like I like to think I was a very creative manager. Um, now, at the t- I didn't do much writing um, because, as the editor in chief or the executive editor, you, the the potential for writing is limited. Uh, although I did write a lot of 
proposals. I wrote a lot of concept statements. A concept statement for a new medium um, it has to be very clear and concise. Uh, what's the vision? How's it going to work? Who's the audience? I wrote a lot of those kind of documents. But okay. didn't write a lot of journalism. All right. Is there anything else that you'd like to say about WebMD? Because I'd like to then peek into your personal life. Peek away. Okay. In 1985, your first wife, Lana, died suddenly. What impact did Lana's death have on your career, Tom? On my career, um, I'll have to say that that uh, uh, the suddenness of of her of her death uh, put me into a, a state of shock, as you might imagine. But I knew in my gut that my passion for my work, I, that I, I still had that passion. I, I knew I had a strong physical feeling of that passion for my work. And I knew that I needed to get back to it as soon as I could. Uh, and when I did, I buried myself in it because I loved it. And it was comforting in my grief. Um, I was surrounded by my staff, uh, people who respected me and that I respected, and my peers in the company. And uh, it was really, really comforting to go back to work and, and just kind of sink into something that I, that I had a passion for. Um, coincidentally, the firm, uh, and I mentioned this earlier, the firm I worked at, Whittle Communications, entered an extreme phase of growth. And I grew rapidly with it. Uh, I felt like a, an embedded acorn growing into an oak Within, uh, I mentioned this earlier, but, but but within four years of my wife's death, I had gone from uh, uh, kind of a group leader, editor type position to the EVP, executive vice president, senior partner of the creative department, and um, and that, of course that was a few years prior to WebMD, um, and um, I think I I I, I, pro I may have continued on that career path had my wife not passed away. But when she died, I became very single-minded uh, towards my career. Uh, in some ways, it was all I had left. At least that was my perspective at the time. And, and so I had nothing at home. I had everything in the office. So basically you used your grief to fuel... Your career, it sounds like. Yes, but I had such a passion. For, I had such a, uh, I mean, the the best way I can describe it is I had a lot of fun working. And I could wish this for everybody. If you enjoy your job so much that you like to go there and have fun doing it, the work is fun, the work is enjoyable, the people you work with are interesting people, um, then that's the greatest thing in the world, I think. If you don't have that, when you come home, you're miserable. If you can come home happy, that, that, that's a plus. Well, you also remarried. Plus, I'm going to say another thing. Editorial environments are very creative. There's always these interesting creative people around. So it was just, it was just a good environment for me. 
in terms of the remarrying and you have two children, um, how have you been balancing your career with those children? Because I remember when we were working together and I was a consultant to you at WebMD, the children were very small, and you were an expert in balancing your career and your family. Could you give us some insight into that? Well, that was... um, um, I'm not so sure I was the... Uh, the expert in balance, as you say. Um, my 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 second wife worked at WebMD st- and, and, and it has worked there for a number of years. Um, and uh, you know, we had our daughter, and then our, and then we have a son. And and I, I remember I mean, the, the hours we had to put in. Um, and when the children are young, they go to bed early, right? So. You know, we would fight over who would go back to the office to work. Well, oh, that's interesting. I guess, yeah, and I then guess the I other have... one would stay home and work on the computer because we could connect to the office. So the kids go to sleep. We'd have our two- or three-hour window, dinner, you know, playtime, bath, bedtime. Okay, then who's going back to the office tonight? <laughs> well, I guess, I guess what I really uh, remember is that you'd be walking home from the office, we'd be talking on the phone, and as soon as you got to your front door, you said you needed to hang up because you were home. So right. that I, I like was... I like to do cell phone calls with the kids around. Right, that's right. So I was impressed that you had boundaries between your personal life and your professional life. Yeah, yeah, and I think you have to have those. Um, if you bring work home too much, the kids start to feel ignored. You, they have to, and especially when they're young, they have to feel like they're the center of the universe, of your universe when you're a parent. Um, so no matter what you're bringing home from work, how much you left undone, at the office, you just can't worry about that. You just have to say, okay, I'm dad now, and this is it. Well, that's what I was impressed with. Let's fast forward a bit more here. Uh, after you left WebMD, you became a student again and an entrepreneur. Tell us about your publishing company and the creation of your book, Aftershocks, The Poetry of Recovery, for life-shattering events. Yes, when I left WebMD, I turned my attention back to my creative writing, um, mainly poetry at first. And I went back to school to get a Master of Fine Arts in creative writing. That took two years. Um, I did it at at Queen's University of Charlotte. They have a low-residency program there. And you can you can go there uh, for uh, several weeks during the year, but do most of the work at home. It was a perfect fit again for me because I was you know a father at home, and I, I was doing some freelance uh, medical editing and writing too. In addition, so I just couldn't go there and be on campus somewhere for two years. Um, so it was a perfect fit for me in, in my in, in my situation. Um, and uh, as I wrote more and more. Got got to know more and more poets around, and uh, was writing. Began to write a lot about my my first wife's death, because uh, I was just one uh, out of a sense of 
wondering about my own recovery and have I recovered and what does it mean to recover and how do I know I've recovered? Uh, I mean, I'm wondering all these things about those events and, and, and with some perspective of of now 23 years. Um, do you think I, I started sudden- to look, huh, pardon me? Yeah, do you think that the suddenness of her death um, prompted you to do the writing? I mean, given that perhaps you want to explain maybe the circumstances a little bit so our listeners can understand the shock of it all. Well, she was killed in a traffic accident. I got a call at my office. Come to the hospital. Your wife's been in a serious accident. So, you know, we went from a happy marriage to, you know, tragedy in, in, in one second. So, and I know, you know many people experience this. 40,000 people or so, so die in traffic accidents every year, and, and they're grieving families left behind. And uh, I understand what they feel now because you go through hell. Um, you know, you go to the hospital, you have to identify the body, the remains of your loved one. And uh, it's, quite a, it's quite a shocking, life-shattering experience. Um, and, and also, uh, she was how old, Tom? Well, I, when 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 she died, we were in our thir- we were in our thirties. I was a widower in my early thirties. I mean, we, we were very young. You know, I don't like the term widower. I, I always envision, envision a widower as some eighty-year-old man doddering around on a cane. But that term attached itself to me too young. I was in my early thirties when I became a widower, and and. Um, I didn't know anybody who was a widower that age. I had no peers that I knew of anyway that that I could relate to. Uh, there are more widows around at that age uh, than, than widowers because men, you know, tend to kill themselves with guns and automobiles and and, and obviously they die in wars and, and other accident, and, and, and accidents. So, um, so... I have to say, maybe my recovery was stunted a bit, uh, and that's why I didn't start writing about her death until until uh, seven years later. I wrote the first poem, 1992. I was still still a working journalist at the time, and I started writing about her in poetry. And uh, during my MFA program, or just immediately after it, I had a burst of poems that I wrote one summer that I wrote about her and her death and her passing and my my feelings and my recovery um, in the ensuing years. And, uh, and, and my, my writing about that uh, caused me to read widely uh, the, the creative writing, especially poetry about recovery. And I started with uh, poetry of Donald Hall and Douglas Dunn, who both wrote about their, the passing of their wives from cancer and um, uh, then branching out into other, other, uh, other poets writing about other types of recovery, um, addiction, abuse, divorce. And, uh, you know, along the way, I, I thought, you know, I, had a, I'm, I, I, I became a... I became very interested in publishing an anthology um, 
one day over lunch, I was meeting with a, a man who had become a mentor of mine. His name is Fred Marchant. He's the director of the creative writing program at Suffolk University in Boston. And, and we were having lunch. It was at a conference here in Atlanta. And he asked me how my manuscript was going. And I, I was told, told him I gave him my sad tale of a thousand rejections. And he said, why don't you become a poetry publisher? And it was like I'd hit the side of a wall. I said, what? Why is he saying this to me? And I thought about that for a whole week. I talked to my wife about this. I said, what, what did he mean? Why don't I become a poetry publisher? And my wife said, well, you know, you are an editor. And, and it was like boing, the, the, the gates opened. And um, within an hour, I had blocked out the whole concept of this anthology, Aftershocks, the Poetry Recovery for Life-Shattering Events. I didn't have the title in that form at the beginning. I was calling it the Poetry Recovery. And um, 18 months after that lunch, I had bound paper. I had an anthology completed. And uh, it was a heck of an 18 months. So... I, I, I had formed uh, my publishing company, Sante Lucia Books, named after my two children, Sante, Sam, and Lucia is Lucy. Um, I, I formed that publishing company to publish this book. Uh, I didn't want to take it to another publisher because I wanted to control the process, and I wanted to go very fast. Publishers work at the speed of glaciers. And I had a, I had wanted to get this book out in the fall of this fall, 2008. And I started on it in April 2007. So in 18 months, I went from an idea to a published book. With 115 poets from 15 yes. Aftershocks nations. has 152 poems by 115 poets from 15 nations. And I did a heck of a lot of reading uh, of poets around the world. And uh, I had an open call for submissions that brought in about 500 submissions. There were some poets that I personally invited that I, that I knew of. Um, and then uh, from my reading, uh, I gathered some, some very well-established poets. Uh, I mentioned uh, Douglas Dunn and Donald Hall earlier and, uh, and others from my reading of could you honor us with a reading uh, from your book, Tom, from Aftershocks? Well, uh, I'd like to read just one short poem out of the 152. There are two poems that I, in this anthology that I have written, and they're in the chapter on recovery from the death of a spouse. By the way, this book covers grief, war, recovery from grief, war, exile, Divorce, abuse, addiction, illness, injury, and loss of innocence, death of a child. Uh, so there are, there are many chapters, and each chapter uh, covers one topic, and this is uh, where I felt my creative contribution could be, uh, could have some impact to recovery from death of a spouse. And when I talk about this poem, uh, and, and I, do, I do talk a bit about it, to recovery groups now, and, and I say there's there's a moment when you experience a life-shattering event when you feel the beginning of recovery, and for me, this was that moment. My, my mother stayed with me for a month or so after Lana died. She was cooking and, 
helping and answering the door and, you know, helping me get through death's paperwork. And this poem is entitled Daffodils. For weeks after Lana's funeral, my mother cooked for me, handled death's paperwork, opened a door. Look outside at your backyard. Looking outward for the first time since burial prayers, I saw daffodils blooming, the ones that Lana and I had planted in the sunken rectangular spot last fall, set against the bright new green of spring, Easter white and careless yellow. Tom, could you tell us how we can buy your book, Aftershocks? Uh, the book is available at Amazon.com, of course. It's a, it's, you can order it through any bookstore, uh, or you can go to the books, the, the Aftershocks website and order it directly from Sante Lucia Books, and that would be www.poetryofrecovery.com. Poetryofrecovery.com. And you just click and order through PayPal. But as I said, it's also available at Amazon, and, and any bookstore has access to it. You can walk into any Barnes & Noble or your local independent bookstore, and they'll order it for you. If someone wanted to email you directly, could you share your email address? Yes, they could reach me at editor at poetryofrecovery.com. Is there anything else that you would like to add, Tom, about your career to help our listeners with their careers? As I said before, go with your passion. Let your passion guide your blueprint to the right fit. Excellent advice. This was such a stimulating conversation that I hope you will join us again on Win Without Competing and share more of your career and personal life with us. Please join me again on Wednesday, December 10th at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. My guest will be Virgil Holder, Corporate Director for recruitment at the prestigious Piedmont Healthcare Corporation in Atlanta. Virgil will tell his career story and share his hiring secrets. On Amazon, watch for Win Without Competing, which will be released soon as a Kindle book. To contact me directly, call 10 10- Four four one five three zero. Until next time, remember this trigger tip. Change your mindset to the right fit method, and you will change your life. Goodbye for now from Dr. Arlene, career coach one, and author, win without competing. Oh, my God.